Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for giving us life. We thank you for bringing us to your house today. We thank you for your word that is life. It is living and breathing, cuts us to the quick, lays bare everything that we are before you. And that can be a scary thing, but it's also a source of peace because we know that you will start fitting all the pieces back together the way that you know is best. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody who walked in through these doors today or listening online later that has a heavy heart, I pray that these words from your word would be a source of life, a source of power, a source of encouragement, that we may all grow together as one as we continue to move forward, continue to take the message of light and life through Jesus and Jesus alone to this hurting world. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're a procrastinator and you're just now wrapping up your Christmas list to Santa, you may be a little too late at this point. We're already uh, December 12th here. But if you want to see if Santa will still respond to your late list, here's some inspiration for you here. These are the most expensive gifts anyone has ever received in human history, which you may or may not want to add to your Christmas list and see what happens. First up on our list is actually the Taj Mahal. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know any of this before, but the Taj Mahal, now one of the most famous tourist destinations in India, was a gift by an Indian emperor as a mausoleum and memorial to his favorite wife after she died giving birth to his 14th child. I don't know how he had 14 children. It took 22 years and 20,000 workers to build, and the amount it took to build this magnificent structure is estimated at $827 million today. So you could put that on your list and see if anything happens. The second most expensive gift is an art collection that American business uh, fragrance businessman Leonard Lauder gifted to the New York Metropolitan Museum of Art. The collection, which includes works by Pablo Picasso and other artists, was given by Lauder to the museum in 2013 and is worth $1.1 billion. But the most expensive gift ever recorded in history is the amount of what France gifted to the fledgling American colonies in their fight for independence. Having already been fighting the war against Britain since 1775, by 1778, the American Congress and military had run out of money. They signed a treaty with France in 1778, with the French government giving them military equipment and money to win the war. The estimated amount given to America at that point is estimated today to be $20 billion. If you want to shoot for something a little bit more realistic, say, I don't think Santa's going to give me something worth $20 billion today. You could always ask Santa for what, Russian billion, what a Russian billionaire gifted his 22-year-old daughter a property in Manhattan valued at a cool $88 million. So, there's your inspiration. You can see if St. Nick will honor any of it, especially if you have any international wars you need help funding this morning. 
But this morning, we're going to be talking about the most valuable gift we've already been given through Jesus' salvation, and that's God himself. More specifically, the gift of the Holy Spirit indwelling us. We've been digging in, into the last recorded words of John the Baptist lately and what they reveal to us about who Jesus is. The verse we'll be talking about today is also part of these last words by John the Baptist. It will reveal more of who Jesus is and what he gives to us. So, if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to John chapter 3, verse 34. Like I said, we're just covering one verse today. John chapter 3, verse 34 if you didn't bring your Bible with you today, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn there or look it up on your Bible app on your smartphone. We read this. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Now the immediate context of this verse reveals to us the relationships and connection between the three members of the Trinity. Here, John reveals that the Father has given the Son, the Holy Spirit, without measure. That specific phrase, without measure, is key to our understanding of this. And here's why. In the Old Testament, those who God would use to accomplish his purposes were filled with the Holy Spirit, but only for specific portions of time and those specific purposes. For example, God tells Moses to commission Joshua to lead Israel after Moses' death and war against the Canaanites and says, uh, uh, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. The judges that then saved Israel from oppressive people groups were filled with the Holy Spirit. The book of Judges describes how Othniel and Gideon and Samson were filled with the Holy Spirit, both in judging and in going to war against these Canaanite people groups. And all the prophets who said and wrote the words of God were filled with the Holy Spirit in order to prophesy those words. For instance, David said, The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me, and his word was on my tongue. And the prophet Ezekiel wrote, and as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. But speaking of the prophets, one of them, named Isaiah, made a very powerful statement about the coming Messianic king. And he said, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. We know Jesse was the father of David. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This messianic king would be characterized by having the Holy Spirit resting on him. This conveys more of a permanent settling of the spirit upon this king. And this spirit would not only give him supernatural wisdom, counsel, and strength, but would also legitimize him as the true king over not only Israel, but the entire world. But then following the Jewish people's return to Judah from Babylonian exile, there were 400 years of prophetic silence. We know that similar to the book of Esther, in which God is not mentioned as working at all, both in Babylonian captivity and return to the land, God was indeed working. 
During these 400 years of prophetic silence, God was still protecting and preserving his people. He freed them from Greek oppression and protected them from Greek annihilation, which the Jewish people still celebrate today as Hanukkah, preserving the Jewish bloodline for the arrival of the Messiah. But by the time the holy night arrived and a baby was born to a teenage girl named Mary and laid to sleep in a manger in Bethlehem, no one really believed the Holy Spirit was doing anything anymore. Most people had forgotten the prophecy in Isaiah, this prophecy that we just read, about the Messianic king having the Holy Spirit resting on him. And so not only was the ministry that God had called John the Baptist to, to prepare the way for the Messiah by calling people to turn back to God and be baptized to show that repentance, but also to remind the Jewish people that the Messiah he was a transition for would be characterized by the filling of the Holy Spirit. And not only was this Messiah to be filled with the Holy Spirit, but there would be something brand new about this filling of the Holy Spirit. The Messianic King would have the Holy Spirit given to him by the Father, what we just read in John 3.34, without measure. There would be no limit. There would be no specificity. There would be no removal of it. All of the Holy Spirit's wisdom, direction, power, and gifts would be granted to the King without limit. This pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the Messiah, John the Baptist personally witnessed. This was already recorded for us back in John chapter 1. John the Baptist said there, then John testified, I saw the Holy Spirit descending like a dove from heaven and resting upon him. It's very similar language, right, to what we read in Isaiah. Very similar language, settling, resting upon him. This was John's first witness to Jesus being one and the same as the Messianic king Isaiah had prophesied about hundreds of years before. And in the verse we're covering this morning, this is John's last testimony to Jesus being one and the same as the Messianic king Isaiah had prophesied about. Jesus is the Messianic king whom the Holy Spirit would permanently rest on and be given access to without limit, without measure. While Isaiah's prophecy focused more on the Messianic king's future kingdom on earth, a period of unmeasured abundance and peace, that earthly connection to the Holy Spirit began at Jesus' baptism and would continue all throughout his future Messianic kingdom. Not only would Jesus, as the Messianic King, be given the Holy Spirit without measure, but Jesus will tell his disciples later on in this same book that he had also been given the authority by the Father to give the Holy Spirit to those who would follow him with their lives. John the, ba John the Baptist had already declared this when Jesus was baptized. He said, I didn't know he was the one. But when God sent me to baptize with water, he told me, the one on whom you see the Spirit descend and rest is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus himself said to his disciples, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now 
and later will be in you. These words of Jesus themselves are a direct fulfillment of another Old Testament prophecy. Ezekiel 36, And I will put my spirit in you, so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. By Jesus saying that the Holy Spirit would lead his followers into all truth, the response of his followers must be that they then obey that truth. As noted by one biblical scholar, the Old Testament prophecies about the future pouring out of the Holy Spirit was always connected to abundance and blessing. I wonder how much Jesus' disciples thought about these prophecies as Jesus was revealing to them that he would ask the Father to give them the Holy Spirit to live within them. All these prophecies will be fully fulfilled in the future messianic millennial kingdom on earth. But we catch a glimpse at this abundance and blessing through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Isaiah also says, For I will pour out water to quench your thirst and to irrigate your parched fields. This is that imagery of abundance. And I will pour out my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your children. It's all connected uh, to, to this abundance and blessing. This gift by Jesus and the Father to the followers of Jesus finally takes place. While all the Jewish people are gathered in Jerusalem for one of the required Jewish feasts, the Feast of Pentecost, there were 120 people gathered in a room, 120 followers of Jesus who were praying together. When all of a sudden the Holy Spirit came upon them with the sound of rushing wind and the appearance of flames of fire over their heads. They all then started speaking in tongues, that is, in languages they didn't natively know, but the languages of all those who had come from various lands and languages to Jerusalem for Pentecost. After they were mocked for seeming drunk at 9 a.m., Peter stood up and delivered a Holy Spirit-fueled sermon that brought 3,000 people to put their trust in Jesus as their Messiah and salvation. Peter confirms that it was the Father through Jesus who had given them the forgotten Holy Spirit, who had not indwelt anyone except for Jesus for hundreds of years. Peter said, God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Now, he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us, just as you see and hear today. As the church developed and grew, the order of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit changed with each phase. When the church first started in Jerusalem, beginning in Acts 2, primarily with Jewish Christians, it was after they were baptized to show that they had repented and put their trust in Jesus that they then received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was then given uh, through the laying of hands by the apostles to the Samaritans who put their faith in Jesus for the purpose of showing that the Samaritans were also to be seen as part of the same church the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem were a part of. Lastly, once Gentiles started receiving Jesus as their Savior and King, they were just given the Holy Spirit immediately upon that faith. In fact, the Jewish Christians who went with Peter to the Gentile Cornelius' house were shocked to see the effects of the Holy Spirit in those Gentiles who trusted in Jesus before they had even been baptized yet. 
that movement of the Holy Spirit given immediately at the moment of one putting their faith in Jesus has continued through the entire church age of the past 2,000 years through till today. That's the way it still works. So what does that mean for us today? Exactly what Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Jesus all prophesied. That the Father, through Jesus, would give the Holy Spirit to those who put their trust in Jesus for their salvation in order to be led into the truth of God's word and to obey it and to have the blessings and spiritual abundance of God revealed to us. Not only this, but just as John said that Jesus was given the Holy Spirit without measure, Jesus also has the authority to give the abundance, gifts, and blessings of the Holy Spirit without measure, without limitation, and without removal. So again, what does Jesus' permanent giving of the Holy Spirit to live within us mean for us? In a nutshell, everything the Holy Spirit does in us now is a glimpse at the full redemption of us when Jesus returns for us, in a nutshell. Here are the specific glimpses he gives. We'll start with what we talked about last week. The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit seals us as the down payment or guarantee for our heavenly home that Jesus has promised to prepare for us. We know that if we were actually sincere about taking Jesus' death and resurrection for our sin as our own, and in repentance of our old life, we therefore care to strive to obey God's moral commandments. We have the Holy Spirit, and that Holy Spirit means we will never lose our salvation. No one can snatch us out of our Father's hand or Jesus' hand. And Jesus will never leave us nor forsake us. And the Holy Spirit speaks to our human spirit and says, You are a child of God. Secondly, the Holy Spirit gives us new life. We talked about this earlier in the service. This is the new spiritual birth that Jesus talked to Nicodemus about, which we spent about one and a half months on. Firstly, the Holy Spirit is the one that churns in our hearts to lead us to put our faith in Jesus to begin with. Without the Holy Spirit acting on God's call in our lives, our spiritual eyes would still not be opened and we would not be empowered to be led to put our trust in Jesus for our salvation. So the very beginning and the very initiation of our new birth comes from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has always been connected with creation. Remember, he was hovering over the waters at the time of the creation of the world and was involved in its creation. And he never stopped making new creations. The Bible talks about how we weren't living at all before we came to Jesus. In fact, we were dead in our sin. We had no hope, no joy, no purpose, and no meaning other than to continue down the road of destruction that ultimately ended in eternal darkness and torment. But at the moment we take Jesus for our own, the Holy Spirit breathes new life into us. We're suddenly given immense hope and overwhelming joy. We are a new creation. Titus 3.5 tells us he saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. 
And Paul writes, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. The regeneration and new creation work by the Holy Spirit releases us from the power of the sins that used to hold us in unbreakable chains and gives us the power to stand up against those temptations for the rest of our lives. Not only that, but this new creation, transformation by the Holy Spirit changes the entire way we view the world. It's fears, it's hopelessness, and it's darkness. Paul says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. There's enough people doing that in this world. You be different. Let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. This new birth and new creation transformation is accomplished through the Holy Spirit growing what's called the fruits of the Spirit within us. These are not things we could manufacture on our own, no matter how hard we tried. So if you're trying to, stop it and let the Holy Spirit grow them in you. They're all direct results of the Holy Spirit's new birth and creation within us. People around us start to see the Holy Spirit's growth of these fruits in our personalities, how we handle different situations, and who we are. Paul writes, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. If you're trying to manufacture love, stop doing it. Give, your, give it over to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that will manufacture that love in you. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These things are not things we can make up on our own, create on our own. These are all things that we have to say, all right, God, you tell me that the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in my life. I'm giving my life over to you to produce these things in my life. Not only does the Holy Spirit produce these fruits in us, but he also empowers us to live the life God has called us to. On one hand, like I mentioned already, the Holy Spirit empowers us to stand against temptation and sin. On the other hand, the Holy Spirit also empowers us to stand up for Jesus and empowers us to bring the good news of his salvation, known as the gospel, to the personal worlds and relationships God has given to us and however he calls us to the rest of this dark world. When Jesus ascended back to heaven, he told his disciples that he was giving them the Holy Spirit for one very crucial purpose, to bring his message to the whole world. That same crucial purpose of the Holy Spirit is given to us as well. Jesus said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This empowerment to reveal and share the gospel message throughout the whole world is manifested in the Holy Spirit himself giving his own spiritual gifts to us as God's children. As I go through these, think about which ones. I want you to shift gears a little bit here. I want you to think about which ones the Holy Spirit may have given to you and ask yourself if you're using them for God's kingdom. 
I did a sermon series on all of these a couple of years ago when we covered 1 Corinthians chapter 12. They're all up on our website if you wish to go back and learn about these spiritual gifts more in depth and what they mean for us in this time before Jesus' return. In short, again, these are all glimpses into the full redemption when Jesus returns for us in his messianic kingdom. Examples of these are found in Ephesians 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and include, but are not limited to, having the gift of spiritual understanding of God's word, having the gift of relating that understanding to others going through tough times, having the gift of teaching the truths of God's word, having the gift of a profound and unwavering faith in the midst of confusion, misery, lack, and pain. Having the gift that when you pray for people in need of physical, emotional, psychological, mental, or spiritual healing, more often than not, they are healed. Having the gift that when you pray for people in need of miraculous healing, miraculous deliverance from danger or evil, or miraculous provision, more often than not, those, th th those people receive those miracles. Having the gift of receiving revelatory messages, visions, or leading of the Holy Spirit, and then communicating that revelation or Holy Spirit's leading to others, known in the New Testament as the gift of prophecy. Having the gift of spiritually being able to discern if one's prophecy is actually from God or a deception from the demonic realm. Having the gift of being able to speak in a language you don't natively know in order to convey the gospel to someone who does natively know that language, known as the gift of tongues. Having the gift of being able to understand what someone speaking in that natively unknown language is saying, known as the gift of interpretation of tongues. Having the gift of helping other people who are suffering and in need of in various ways. Having the gift of leadership and accomplishing spiritual goals with the help of others. Having the gift of serving other people and coming alongside of them in whatever they need. Having the gift of financially giving generously to God's work and to those in need. Having the gift of leading Christ's church under the direction of the Holy Spirit. And having the gift of encouraging others, especially other Christian brothers and sisters, and especially those in difficult times of pain and spiritual attack. As Paul says in his discussion of these gifts, the Holy Spirit gives all of these to whom he wants in order to build God's kingdom here on earth. We don't all have the same gifts, but we've all been given at least one gift, and most likely more than one gift. So, what gift or gifts do you have? You don't know. You're not allowed to continue perpetually in a state of, I don't know. It's okay if you don't know, but if you don't know, have a conversation with God about which gift or gifts the Holy Spirit has given to you, and he will reveal to you what they are. Then, once you know what they are, you can't just not do anything with them. Then, start using them. The Holy Spirit has given us all spiritual gifts, but spiritual gifts to use and to build up Jesus' church. The Holy Spirit will also convict us 
of different areas of sin that we continue to hold on to, either knowingly or previously unknown. When you feel the Holy Spirit churn in your heart to get something right you know isn't right before God in your life, get it right with God right then and there. If not, it will always be a detriment to your spiritual life, your spiritual growth, and the health and growth of our church. We can't keep growing as a church if one of our church family members is knowingly harboring sin and refusing to make it right before God. The Holy Spirit at this point in world history is the only reason why this world hasn't completely collapsed into complete evil and darkness. You think it's bad now, it could be a whole lot worse, and it will get a whole lot worse. He is current, the Holy Spirit is currently preserving the world as salt preserves meat until God determines it's time for that preservation to be removed. Jesus tells his disciples that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin and hold that sin in check. He says, and when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. 2 Thessalonians 2.7 tells us that the Holy Spirit will continue to keep evil in check until, until it's time to fully reveal the Antichrist during the Great Tribulation period. Then the gates of hell will burst forth and waves of evil we can't even comprehend will come crashing down upon this world. Paul says, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. I mean, we do see it in the world. Only he, the Holy Spirit, who now restrains it, will do so until he is removed. And then the Antichrist will be fully revealed. Lastly, the Holy Spirit, as Jesus' representative, is our personal comforter. We are never alone, even when we feel like it, and even when we're in our darkest times. God pours out his comfort upon us, especially in our times of greatest loss, confusion, anger, and pain through the moving of the Holy Spirit within us. The word Jesus uses in John 14, 6 for the Holy Spirit, which we already covered, is translated advocate or intercessor or comforter. Not only does he comfort us in our greatest times of need and heartache, but he intercedes for us to the Father to have mercy on us. In fact, in our times of heart, when our times of heartbreak and depression are too much for us, and we have no idea what to even pray for, the Holy Spirit is the one who speaks for us. Paul says, now in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the Holy Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And finally, when we gather together to worship God as his children and as brothers and sisters, all indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we can feel his presence together as one, as we're bound together in church unity by the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit given by the Father to Jesus and given by both the Father and Jesus to us truly is the most valuable gift we could ever receive. And we just touched the surface on this gift today. There's so much more to this gift of the Holy Spirit that I encourage you to explore in God's Word yourself. Hopefully I whet your appetite for that. 
this Christmas season, be thankful for all that the gift of Jesus' salvation and the gift of the Holy Spirit gives to you. And explore more and more each day all of what the Holy Spirit offers to us by his indwelling of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that your word teaches us about the Holy Spirit, about who he is. He's not some impersonal force. He is the third member of the Trinity, God himself. Come to make a home within us, to lead us, convict us, grow the fruits of the Spirit in us, gift us in the way that he chooses to build up Jesus' church, gives us comfort in our greatest time of need, gives us direction and wisdom in our greatest times of confusion, and helps us, give, gives us the power and strength to stand up against spiritual attack. Lord God, thank you for this gift of the Holy Spirit. May, if, if we don't know what gifts he has given to us, may we today have a conversation with you. And, and I know that you will reveal those to each of us who ask you what they are and how to use them. And Lord, I pray that as we go out from this place, we would have a renewed uh, knowledge, renewed sense of who the Holy Spirit is within us. That we would go out into this world empowered by his power. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.